Here on Constant Wonder, we often feature guests and stories in a way that allows our underlying premise to just kind of emerge gradually. We don't necessarily spell it all out plainly or in capital letters. We don't shout W-O-N-D-E-R. We generally prefer to trace the edges of wonder and the human experience of wonder as each episode unfolds. Today, though, I think I'd like to approach things a little differently. I'm going to be very explicit with a direct observation about the experience of wonder. It's not my observation, it's our guests. David Haskell says that wonder increases as speed decreases. Let that sink in just for a little bit there. I'll say it one more time. Wonder increases as speed decreases. David is known for his exceptionally close attentiveness to the world, as when, in the presence of a tree, he engages his senses, stepping close, listening, nose against the bark, inhaling its essence. I carry part of the tree with me after I've left. And this is one reason why we feel better after going out into the woods and slowing down, slowing our minds and our bodies down to be in relationship with the living world as it is, not always thinking about the past and the future as we usually do in our busy, busy minds. Some would say he has heightened powers of observation, but having gotten to know him, I suspect he would push back on that. I'm losing my hearing at certain frequencies, he would tell us, and then I'm certain he would also counter, well, anyone who's willing can do this. And I, for one, want to know how to do that. David Haskell, a professor of biology and environmental studies at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. In this episode, we're pulling back the curtain as far as we possibly can to understand his MO. How does he engage with bark and with birds, with the shifting pressure of wind moving over a forest and the vibrations that produce those fluctuations of sound? How does he engage with flora and fauna as these move and morph over time? The sound of a Clark's nutcracker, a bird in the corvid family related to jays, crows, and ravens, commonly seen in the mountainous regions of the American West. Go out in the woods somewhere, pick one square meter of ground, go back to it again and again to be with it, observing that spot over time. Oh, let's say for about a year. David has done that. Delving deep like this into the natural rhythms of a particular small place, even recording audio of the literal rhythms and vibrations and cycles of minuscule things, as you might imagine, this takes immense care and patience. And from that steady observation can emerge a powerful feeling. There's another kind of energy, and that's the energy of familiarity and of deeper knowledge you have this sense of both knowing what's going on and being at the edge of a huge, humbling mystery. David was passing through his own neighborhood once in Sewanee, Tennessee, when he stopped suddenly for a crunching sound that caught his ear. Listen right now to the sound of a beetle larva chewing on wood beneath the outer bark of a tree. And I'm going to warn you, 
because this this is a multiple layered recording of lots of sounds, lots of different things happening all at once. That's David Haskell's original recording. For one thing, it seems to indicate that a bug's bite can be bigger than bark. But if you listen to tease out the sounds, you can detect that there's actually a chorus of musicians here, not just a soloist. So this was a sound I recorded in a suburban backyard in Tennessee. I was taking a little walk down the road and this old white pine tree in my neighbor's yard was standing there and I, I heard this crunching sound coming from, and this was, I was standing several meters away, this rhythmic crunching sound. And so I stopped, hushed my breathing a little bit and, and listened and then went, rushed back home and got my sound recorder because here were the sounds of a beetle's mandible. This is the lava of a, a cerambicid beetle chewing away at the wood underneath the bark. And this beetle is about as big as my thumb, this lava. So this is a pretty substantial creature crunching away, eating away at the wood. And there's a downy woodpecker also in the tree. And I'm sure that downy woodpecker had its ears cocked listening for that sound because uh, if you can dig out a cerambicid beetle lava as a downy woodpecker, that's your meal for the day. I suddenly got caught up in the drama of and the magnificence of this creature's life. And then the, the additional part of the story, of course, which is the woodpecker waiting to see if it can locate the beetle by sound. You've spent a lifetime learning how to even think that you should be listening for something chewing on wood that's very small uh, in, in, in your own neighborhood. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your path to that kind of attentive listening and then maybe tie that back to this whole issue of speed in our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My path to listening came really first through birds. As a kid, I liked music, but I wasn't particularly thinking about listening in, in any way other than how all my friends were. It was later on in college where I met some people who had, these were older people who devoted a good chunk of their life to listening to the sounds of birds, not just to identify species, but to pick out individuals and understand what each individual was, was doing, what its behavior was. And these people taught me, you know, in a way, offered me an invitation into that world to listen in. And I found that, that just even knowing like half a dozen local bird species was like adding a whole new color or even new, a new sense plugging into my consciousness. Because then every time I was outside, I was aware of the soap opera of non-human animal life around me, the mood of the Carolina wren or what the crows were up to today. And so, so it really was one of those transformative gifts from teachers to me. And I say transformative because with the texture of my consciousness and, my, and the nature of my experience in the world then changed. And, and it was so much richer. And as a teacher, what I've tried to do over, over the years is to extend that invitation to others. What would it mean to listen? And one of the things that is really helpful in developing the practice of listening or close sensory attention, but also just smelling the aromas of the world and feeling its textures, is to slow down. Okay, okay, this is, let me slow you down no. then. <laughs> Take me straight to a story of the last time you were close to a ponderosa pine. 
and the sensory approach you used towards that tree. Where was it and what happened to you? So ponderosa pines are, are trees of the West. And the last time I was with one was in on the front range of Colorado. And ponderosas are these magnificent creatures in the gifts that they offer our senses. One of those gifts is about sound. They're some of the most talkative trees that I've ever encountered anywhere in the world. And that's because the ponderosa pines, particularly in the Rocky Mountains, have very stiff needles. Okay, you just said the talkative tree. That, that's a poet speaking. Yeah, right. <laughs> if there is poetry there, it's because the poetry is in the tree and its relation to us. And I think the job of a writer or of a scientist, a naturalist, is to report those sensory connections and the nature and personality of, of other beings. And so when the wind blows through a ponderosa pine tree, it lets this great big whoosh out. And it sounds very different from other species of pine trees. And the ponderosa pines out in California actually have a very different sound because they have softer, more flexible needles. The other thing with ponderosa is it has a beautiful aroma, sort of vanilla. Well, every tree is a slightly different tang, but uh, in the young, fast-growing trees, vanilla. In the older ones, there's a bit more of a, a darker, tannic, almost like a whiskey barrel aroma mixed in with the vanilla. And I do this quite a lot when I'm hiking out in, in the West. It's just stop on the side of the trail and listen. And then get up close to the tree and inhale that beautiful aroma. And it's not just a sensory delight of the moment, but those sounds weave their way into my nervous system. And then the aromas from the tree actually get into my lungs and then my bloodstream. So I carry part of the tree with me after I've left. And this is one reason why we feel better after going out into the woods and slowing down, slowing our minds and our bodies down to be in relationship with the living world as it is, not always thinking about the past and the future as we usually do in our busy, busy minds. So were you talking just figuratively about that aroma entering into your body? No, 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 no. <laughs> Literally. Because what is aroma? Aroma are organic molecules. For example, in a tree, the plant has made those. And the, in the intention for the plant is not to give me a gift, but they're trying to communicate with other plants through the air, through these little molecules, and also deter beetles. And their aromas have all kinds of ecological functions. We breathe them in. And some of those molecules do dissolve into the fluid in our lungs. And then just as the oxygen flows into the blood, just some of these molecules then bind to us from within. And it's a tiny, weeny little bit of, of plant molecules. I mean, if you want a bigger dose, you drink a cup of coffee or drink some tea, and then you really are taking some plant chemicals that interact with our nervous system, caffeine being a, a good example of that, uh, directly into the bloodstream. But aroma does the same way, and it's the same thing in, in, in subtle ways. And we know this, and that's why we have perfumes and scented candles, and why we enjoy certain aromas and not others, is that they're not just fleeting sensory impressions. They go down into a deep core of ourselves. Visitors to the wilderness who venture out to spend time in what we often call nature, they will commonly describe their stay as an opportunity to take it in. David Haskell just connected that expression with his own lifeblood. We'll be right back to David in mere moments, but first a listening quiz for you. I'm certain you're going to pass this with flying colors. Identify the following sound. Is it a car passing by? the roar of a watery cascade, or maybe, just maybe, 
the sound of wind through the lofty tops of Ponderosa Pines somewhere in the western wilderness. I want to tell you a story that's in the core of myself, and it does have to do with the Ponderosa Pine. A few years ago, the California fires were just intense, and the smoke covered the west. The western half, I'm sure, bled into the east as well. But it got to a point where it was so bad here in Utah, where I live, that I said to the family, let's go south and get out of the smoke. Let's go down to Bryce Canyon National Park. We unfortunately did not get away from the smoke. And so the vista was not there for me to see with my sense of sight. But we sat on the edge of the rim of Bryce Canyon by a ponderosa pine. There were many of them. And uh, the reason I want to tell this story is because I have this tendency to compartmentalize and say, this is my ponderosa pine story, but it turns out to be a nuthatch story, actually. Because in being drawn to the Ponderosa pine, and for me it smells like butterscotch, maybe vanilla, but butterscotch, uh, I got close and I had my kids come up and, and touch and feel it and smell it. And I had seen nut hatches in books before, but I'd never seen one alive in front of me. And I, I had no idea that the Ponderosa would lead me to that experience. And I'm wondering what you could tell me, maybe you have a similar story of the expansiveness of our attention, which doesn't just bring us discrete little individual living things, but families of things. Yes, that's a marvelous story of a tree serving as, as in a way, a portal into a connection with, with the nuthatch. And, you know, for the nuthatch, the tree was a larder of food. Right? So when we look at the bark of a ponderosa pine, we see little crevices and things like that. But birds have much higher density of photoreceptors in their eyes. So for them, looking at a tree is, is, is if we had a very high-powered magnifying glass and we're looking. So they see things like spider eggs and tiny little beetles that we can't see. So in a way, you met and befriended this nuthatch, uh, and you were also in the presence of a parallel sensory world. And the, the nuthatches see things in, in ways that are, that are different from us. In my own practice, which has been often to pick particular places, one patch of forest or a single tree in a city, and then return again and again to that place to stop, to listen, to smell, to talk to people, to observe how people interact with trees and, and forests. What I'm looking for is that unexpected connections and relationships make themselves known to me. For example, one of the trees that I've studied and visited now over many years is a very ordinary street tree in Manhattan. And by returning again and again over dozens, maybe even hundreds of hours now just to hang out around that tree, I realized that the tree is changing how people interact with one another on the street. Because away from the tree, the sidewalks in Manhattan are, are like river rapids. As a pedestrian, you gotta keep moving or you get run over. But if you step into the shade of the tree on the side of the sidewalk, you're in an entirely different social zone. You don't get mowed over and people step aside there to check their phones or have a little snack, deal with their kids, tie their kids' shoelace. And it's a more sociable place. People are friendly to each other, say hello, make a little eye contact in a way that you would never do 
when you're just marching down the street. And so the presence of the tree in the middle of a very busy city gives us all kinds of benefits. It cools the city down, it cleans up pollution, but it also changes the nature of human social interactions on the street. And in fact, there have been studies that are not done by me, but done by other people at looking across large data sets at human well-being, in particular human sociability in green spaces versus places that are more dominated by human-built structures, like concrete roads and buildings. And we tend to become more pleasant to one another, perhaps more forgiving of others, more friendly. And so that was one, just a little insight from one tree, just from me hanging out with a particular tree that I've devoted some time to, but has a much, I think, a bigger implication. And, and that is, as we think about urban design and where we want to live and the human built environment, how might we incorporate opportunities to listen to other species, to smell foliage, to soak our eyes in the color of green in trees, or maybe in the various colors of the sand and the stone or the dry grasses in prairie areas or in places where trees aren't the dominant vegetation. I want to go out into the wild, to the Rocky Mountains with you, and uh, let's do it through this audio that you gathered. I believe you're on a ridge top or, or near the quite, quite a conspicuous sound of wind. And over the top of that, the higher pitch of a bugling elk which is one of the most remarkable sounds in nature. That kind of listening experience for you took how long? Uh, how long were you there and how long did you listen? I'm imagining that's just a short sample of the full audio you gathered. <laughs> Yes, you know, one of the things about recording in the in the Rocky Mountains is that at certain times of year, particularly in the winter and in the early spring, things can be very windy, and so it's hard to get good, clean audio recordings because the wind messes with your microphones. But one of the delights in the mountains is to sit and listen to how the wind dances over the landscape. I'm from the UK originally, but I've spent most of my time here in the US the last 30 years in the eastern U.S., where the wind has a much quieter voice. And so when I first came to the Rocky Mountains, I was, it was a little frightening because these were the kinds of sounds that you would really only hear at the edges of a tornado or something out in the east. But even small gusts of winds in the Rockies evoke great whooshing sounds from the stiff-needled trees all around them. And so that provides the background to any animal that wants to communicate with other members of its species in this habitat. And the more time I spent walking on trails up through the Rocky Mountains, I realized almost all of the species are calling and singing to one another at a very high frequency, a very high-pitched sound. For example, the elk is much higher sound than most other mammals of its size. I mean, if, if you do a plot a graph of body size against the frequency of sound, larger animals make deeper sounds, just as a cello in an orchestra makes a lower pitched note than a violin does. Um, so as, as objects and as living beings get bigger, they tend to have lower, deeper voices. But this elk has broken that rule and is, is calling it a very high pitch. The same with the red crossbills, these birds that, that live up in the mountains, often in very noisy environments in terms of wind and tree noise, they also make unusually high-pitched sounds. 
And those high-pitched sounds have the effect of vaulting over the mire of a low-frequency sound that the trees have made. Well, thank you for explaining that. I, I think it gives us the perfect excuse to, to go back and listen again, to practice differentiating. Uh, let's see if we can tease out what kinds of sounds are competing with the wind in the trees. How many different layers? So let's go back now and uh, hear that, that elk, among other things, that elk bugling again. And this illustrates just a more general point about animal vocalizations, is that they're adapted to their homes. If you go to the seashore up in Maine or in Portland and uh, Seattle, lots of waves crashing on sand or on rocky headlands making a great roaring sound, while well, the oyster catchers and the seagulls and the shorebirds have very loud, high-pitched, piercing cries that can cut through that background noise. Woodland birds tend to sing very slow, melodious, whistled songs because those are the kinds of songs that transmit best through dense vegetation, whereas birds on the prairie tend to have much more rapidly trilled, virtuosic sounds. In the voice of the crossbills and the elk or the shorebirds or the forest birds, we hear the imprint of their homes. We hear a sort of echo of the mountain or the seashore of the forest that has caused each species to adapt to its home and produce this amazing match between the kind of vocalization and the home. And that's one of the delights of listening for me is to ask, what's the story behind the sound? Why does a bird or the elk or the rabbit have this particular kind of vocalization? In what way does that reveal something about its habitat, its home, where it's come from? its relationships within and between other species. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. We're speaking with David Haskell, and any excuse would do as far as I'm concerned, but very convenient to our purposes here on Constant Wonder. We've decided to touch on some of the ideas and experiences contained in his recent book titled Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. David, as you're talking right now about vocalizations that reveal information about the relationship between an animal and its home, you're really telling two different stories here, I think. One is the story of the origin of sonic diversity, and there's a long evolutionary story there that you're telling. You're telling it like a scientist would. The other story is the story of my capacity to listen to sonic diversity, my own attentiveness, if I can muster that. I love an orchestra. I'll go to a concert, and I will... You, you brought up the cello, and so now I'm thinking about... The, it's not even analogous. It's, it's the same diversity that we're talking about in terms of sonic production, the cellos, the tubas, the, the, the trombones. If I'm hearing a, a symphony by Beethoven or Mahler or Brahms, I'm not just going for a melody. Yeah, well, in fact, as you listen to those symphonies, you're embedded in the forest too. 
because every one of those instruments comes from the living earth. We're hearing the second voice of a tree in the cello, of course, combined and enhanced greatly by human artistry and creativity, and that's the beauty of music. My experience of listening to music has really changed because I've become more aware of the earthly origins of all musical instruments. And so whether it's a rock concert or a, or a symphony, and I like to go to all kinds of different uh, kinds of live music, I'm in the moment of the music and I'm also being transported into the materials and the ecosystems and the energies that are powering this particular sonic experience. When we're hearing a reed instrument today, like a, an oboe, clarinet, a saxophone, the reed that is on the lips of the player is in fact a, a, from a marsh plant, a particular species of plant that has very tough and yet slightly flexible material that, for example, oboe players spend a long time crafting with very sharp knives into exactly the right shape. So we're transported into the swamp as, as we're hearing the oboe, the clarinet, or transported into the forest when we're hearing stringed instruments. Flutes, for me, have a particular power because the first archaeological evidence that we have of any musical instrument anywhere in the world are flutes from caves in the Paleolithic 40,000 years ago. And a few years ago, I was able to visit the museums in southern Germany where these artifacts are found. So you can be just inches away, behind glass, of course, from the first physical evidence of instrumental music on the planet. And then you can visit the caves in which those instruments were played, the caves where they were unearthed. People made instruments out of the bones and the ivory tusks of their prey, so that the hunter's breath united with the prey's body, that's a very, a very powerful union, but also in relationship to the space in which they were played. I think it's no accident that the first musical instruments, flutes, were well suited to the place in which they were played. In the background, we've been listening to a precise recreation that David himself commissioned. It's a performance using a replica of a mammoth bone flute, the kind that David describes as having been found in caves in Germany. To this day, flute music sounds great in reverberant places like caves. And most CDs of flute music often have a little bit of reverb added to them post-recording because that allows the flute to just sound richer. So going right back to 40,000 years ago, musical instruments tied us into the ecology of our local environment. So in a big cave, for example, if you were to play a, a violin or an electric guitar, it would sound horrible because the reverberation would be too strong. But there's been this long reciprocal relationship between the space in which music is played and the form of instruments. And that relationship continues to the present day. So when large concert halls were built in the 19th century, most of the instruments on stage were reworked, were redesigned to be able to provide a loud and stable tone within that much, much larger space.
and the human singing voice has changed. 200 years ago, most human singers had to have a loud enough voice to fill a whole concert hall. Now we can whisper into a microphone. For example, Billie Eilish is sort of a maestro of the earbud because their singing voice is so well matched to the technology that we use to listen to the music. You give the analogy of flying over the country in an airplane and being bored, whereas if you go into your own yard and sit down for that same duration of time with a spot maybe a meter square, you might have infinite opportunity to experience wonder in the present of some very small things. And, that, and that's what I'm going to talk about next, the smallness of sound. You talk about the very first organic production of sonic experience. That, well, who was there to experience when the very first bacterium was waving its very first cilia? These things can be measured. A single cell can make a sound. Yes, so sound is a little compression wave flowing through the medium. So when I'm speaking, I'm causing the air to vibrate ever so slightly, and then our ears are amazingly well-tuned to pick out those tiny vibrations and turn them into conscious experience. Pretty amazing thing just to think about that process. But right at the beginning, the early parts of the evolution of life, where, of course, there were just single-celled creatures, as those creatures moved around, and as the biochemistry worked within them, and this is true to this, to this day with bacteria and single-cell creatures, they made very, very small little vibrations in the fluid around them. And we don't have any examples of bacteria using sound to communicate, like making a song or an alarm call or anything like that. It may be that someone will discover that in the future, but for the moment, we don't. But we do know this bacteria, at least some of them, are sensitive to the sounds that other bacteria make and can have their growth stimulated by this. So right from the get-go in, in, in relatively simple organisms, like simple single cells, there is an ability to perceive and react to vibrations in the world around. Then through animal evolution and also through the evolution of plants, although they took a very different route, and don't have sophisticated ears the way we do, but they're also sensitive to sound. Through the evolution of sound-detecting cells and organs, particularly in the animal kingdom, this ability to pick up vibrations in the water or the solid or the, the air around us developed. And what's amazing to me is that all across the animal kingdom, the ability to detect sound is based on essentially the same cellular structure. And that is this tiny little hair, which is, as you said, is called the cilia, tiny hair poking up from the top of a cell that when air or water moves across it, it wiggles and then it turns that wiggling into biochemical reactions inside the cell. That's how our human inner ears work at, at, at their core. That's how I'm hearing is is through my little hair cells in my ear picking up sounds. But that's also how fish and lobsters and, and flies and beetles pick up vibrations in the world around them. For many of them, it's in air or water, but for many insects, it's actually vibrations coming through 
wood or twigs or leaves. There's a whole sonic world of insects communicating through solid matter as well. But all based on the same cellular structure. Well, well, here's what happened to me this morning. I was uh, sitting uh, on a sofa and my cat was on my lap and it started to purr. And I put my hand on it because I knew I was going to be talking with you. I asked myself, am I hearing or am I sensing this? I want to be attentive to this in a new way. I don't just want to use my ears. And it was a multi-layered thing. At least there were two layers. I could hear the purring with my ears, but my hand was on its neck, just on the fur of the nape of the neck there. And I said, is this hearing with my hand? Answer that question for me. Was I hearing with my hand? So I would say that you are, and that hearing takes many bodily forms. Of course, our inner ears are a part of that. But we can hear through our fingertips, through our hands. And in fact, there are about a dozen different touch receptors in our fingertips, many of which are receptive to at least some frequencies of sound. When you hear the low bass drum, say of a rock concert, even off in the distance, often you feel that in your chest because it's making your chest resonate. There's a sense in which you're hearing there. And a violinist or a cellist, of course, hears through their fingertips all the time. That's how they become good musicians. Often the processing in the brain, though, is different for those forms of vibration. The nerves in our fingertips are not going through the same oral processing centers as the nerves from our inner ear. But to me, that, that's all right. It just means we have multiple pathways, multiple ways of, of sound arising in human consciousness. That multidimensionality then opens our imagination to how other species can hear. Many insects hear primarily through little vibration sensors in the joints in their legs rather than through any external ear. A fish hears many particularly low-frequency sounds on its skin and in little canals that run through the skin. And so for fish, hearing through not just the inner ears, but also on and through the skin and the organs inside the body is part of what hearing is about. Since the word hearing can refer to our detection of sound using different pathways, external pathways, internal, even bypassing those organs that we were taught in elementary school are what help us to hear, well, I think it would be really eye-opening now to sample a frequency that is too subtle for our ears and brains to really ever notice it, at least not without a leg up, uh, some manipulation. We're going to hear a twig making almost imperceptible movements over time. David Haskell has captured this natural phenomenon in a way that simulates sound. Well, actually, I think it's the other way around. He uses sound to simulate the phenomenon, and it allows us to see or observe or witness what's happening. Just imagine being so attentive to the expansion and contraction of a twig over time that we could actually hear this rhythm, its motions of growth, and then to listen to this over the course of a day, a week, a month, a year. What does a growing twig sound like? Well, you're about to find out.
Could you describe how the pitches in your recording, and we're going to give it a listen in just a moment here, uh, how these pitches correspond to the hydraulic expansion and contraction as water through the course of a day or through the course of a week goes in and out of a twig? Yes, so the sounds that we'll hear are generated by a computer, but what feeds into that computer are measurements from a maple twig. And it turns out if you put a very sensitive caliper on the twig of any tree, I chose a a maple tree in Tennessee, you find that during the day when water is flowing through the twig, the twig contracts slightly, like a straw. When you suck on the drinking straw, that straw kind of sucks in a little bit. And then at night, the twig expands. And so if you imagine speeding that up, it's almost like a heartbeat. The twig is contracting and expanding, contracting and expanding as water, the lifeblood of the plant, moves through it. And of course, that beat is on a 24-hour cycle because night and day follow one from another quite slowly compared to, say, a human heartbeat. But if we take the measurements of that twig and then turn those measurements into sound and speed it up, we can hear the increase and decrease in the diameter of the twig. So what we're hearing in this recording is an up and down in pitch, and that up and down is determined by the diameter of this particular maple twig increasing and decreasing. You may also hear a, a shift in frequency over the entire sonification here, and that is the twig, this was in the springtime, the twig was actually adding little slivers of wood day by day, and so it got fatter, not because water was in it, but because it was expanding and growing, turning from a twig into a little branch. So we can hear that as well. It's a slightly more subtle shift than the, the up and down of the twig sounds. So high, high, high pitches, fatter twig, lower pitches, thinner twig. Yes. Remember now, and I think this is something worth quibbling about a little bit, David Haskell isn't exactly modeling a twig's growth using acoustics. He's translating that growth into an acoustic form. Our inner ear doesn't model either. It translates. It translates data for the brain. Here's a comparison for you. Just over a year ago, there were some astronomers at the Event Horizon Telescope Project And they undertook a similar kind of translation when they released the first ever image, watch that word, an image of a black hole. As I understand it, they were leveraging lots of data from lots of different sources to kind of mirror what a particular black hole, quote unquote, looks like. This translation business, it can be done with vast things or small things. It can be the pulse and the rhythm produced over eons of time out in the universe, or the rhythms of a single day in the life of tiny cells in a tree twig. So that was the 24-hour cycle, and now I'd like us to listen uh, to a, a week Of course, this is going to be one of the fastest weeks you've ever experienced. But David, what we're hearing here, you say, over the course of the week is a gradual lowering overall of pitches as the twig puts on more cells? 
Yes. Yeah, so in fact, the way I coded the computer is that the pitch actually goes up as the twig gets a little fatter, which is an arbitrary decision. And it's... I got it backwards. I got it backwards, in other words. Uh, yeah, but the key point here is that you hear the daily up and down of the pitch, which is the twig expanding and contracting as the water flows through it and then ceases its water flow at night. And then also you're hearing the growth of the twig. Some people listen to their podcasts at high playback speeds. Well, that's kind of the trick that David is using here, you know. And the result can at least seem a little frenetic, but in truth, he is advocating for closer observation. And that kind of observation, by its nature, is not frenetic. It's a paradox, I think. Sometimes you might have to speed something up just to hear it slowly. I'm sold on taking time for this kind of patient observation. Life flies by far too quickly as it is, you know what I mean? I'm Marcus Smith, and this is the Constant Wonder Podcast. We're visiting with writer and biologist David Haskell. His most recent book is titled Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. From the sounds of a beetle snacking on bark to an expanding twig, we've even heard an elk bugling over the top of rushing wind. David just strikes me as one of the most attentive souls you could ever meet. And as I chatted with him, I think it would have been foolish not to seize the moment for a little bit of practical advice about listening. Now when I walk through the woods in the springtime, the twigs to me look kind of stationary. I don't hear any of these sounds, but I'm imagining this great pulsation happening all around me and, and, and imagining the inner dynamism of the plants. I'm not a scientist, and yet I want to expand the range of what I can detect. What do I do? Yes, and I, I should point out that my hearing is not particularly good. In fact, in Sounds Wild and Broken, I talk about a hearing test in which I realized that you know, I'd lost a lot of the upper frequencies. And we don't need a PhD in science to listen well. In fact, a PhD in science in some ways can get in the way because we've got too many ideas crowding in our head about that sound. <laughs> the key practice is, and, and this can be a very short practice, is just to give the world the gift of our attention. And when I'm working with students on this, I invite them to imagine pouring their attention into their ears just for a couple of minutes and then sending that attention out in the world, almost like tentacles coming out from the ears, maybe a little bit of a sci-fi image there. But we can do that. We can direct through an act of the will our ears and our minds then to harvest the sounds that are around us, pay attention first to the most obvious sounds. And then what was the sound that we first, we didn't even hear because it was too quiet or we were distracted by something else. And how far when we're outside, how far can we hear 
what's happening all around us. Normally in a city, you can only hear a block or two because there's a lot of traffic around. Out in a more rural area, maybe you can hear half a mile or maybe even sometimes 10 miles if it's really quiet. And think about letting go judgment of the sounds. Often, and I do this a lot, you know, I hear one kind of sound that's like, well, I don't like that sound. And another one, oh, that reminds me of childhood. I love it. Just let all that go, at least for a little while, and be present for the physicality of sound. Try and describe it through an analogy, a metaphor, a simile. Does it sound pointy or silvery? Does it sound like a big sort of low fog that is gradually spreading from the north, moving south? Or does it sound like it's moving in space in, in, in a way that's jolty or smooth? So trying to come up with analogies to imagine the, the physicality of sound and then communicate it to others is not just a helpful way of paying more attention to sound, but then of stimulating our curiosity about the sounds. Because almost guaranteed, wherever you are, if you just sit down and pay some attention with your ears, you will hear things that you hadn't realized were there and that will provoke questions. And one of the things I, I've done in my own practice and that I encourage my students to do is to pick a particular place and return to it again and again to listen, even just for a minute or two. It could be a street corner or a tree out in a city park, or a place on the front porch of an apartment. Just hang out and listen for a couple of minutes, and over the days and the weeks, and then perhaps eventually months and years, we'll come to know that place in a way that took us no money, it took us very little effort, but it was just the gift of our attention. And this is like making friends with a human, right? How do you befriend another human being? By listening, not just once, but over and over again, just being listening to their story without judging too much. And we can do the same, of course, in, in it's not exactly analogous, but for our neighborhoods or for a favorite uh, place out in a park or, or in the mountains or on the seashore, wherever we happen, happen to live, and come to know that place and befriend the living earth and listen within us for then what is then our responsibility in terms of taking care of this world, what's broken that might need fixing, what's beautiful that might need celebrating. These are all questions that can emerge in an unexpected and open-ended way from a practice of sensory attention to a place. Just because you do return to places over and over again and you give them the gift of your listening and attentiveness, I have to ask you, can you go back and experience the same startling jolt of awe or wonder or surprise that may have greeted you the first time you heard something when you hear it again? I would say it's deeper when you hear it again. Of course it's different, particularly with things that are novel, like the first time you hear a kookaburra or the first time you really hear a raven chattering to itself quietly. Those are just remarkable experiences that carry us into the lives of other species that are full of the energy of novelty and of discovery. But then there's another kind of energy, and that's the energy of familiarity and of deeper knowledge, where if one were to live in a place with lots of ravens and then really listen to them over years and years, you have this sense 
of both knowing what's going on and being at the edge of a huge humbling mystery. And that's, for me, one of the fruits of this repeated attention to place is that the sense of wonder at the marvels of the world increases, but also this almost sense of terror is, is not quite the right texture of a word, or perhaps humility in realizing that multiple lifetimes listening in one spot in the woods or on one city street corner would not be enough to understand all the stories that are present in this place. And I think that's a helpful and, and in a way a joyful experience to have in a culture that encourages us so much to be, think about ourselves and our own identity and so on, to be in the presence of such a multiplicity of stories to realize that, oh, this life is about relationship and connection to other. It's, 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 it's a decentering of the self, an unselfing, as Iris Murdoch, the philosopher, called it, which is an experience of beauty that's not just superficial prettiness and not that there's anything wrong with superficial prettiness. We all need the nice little flower or the experience of the sunset, but, but I'm talking about a beauty that is deeper that comes from continued relationship with a place. And again, the analogy of human friendship, of course, meeting someone for the first time can be super exciting and lovely in, in many ways, but then those deep friendships that have spanned half a century carry so much more complexity within them, and they also carry a form of beauty that, that can't be present in a short encounter. David Haskell, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, and I wish everybody good listening and good sounds in the coming days and weeks. Biologist David Haskell, our guest today. He's a professor at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee, and one of the most respected nature writers living today few book titles for you. The Forest Unseen, A Year's Watch in Nature. I was a finalist for the 2013 Pulitzer Prize. The Songs of Trees, Stories from Nature's Great Connectors, 13 Ways to Smell a Tree, and most recently, Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. I also highly recommend any of his brilliant essays that have appeared in publication in places from the New York Times to Scientific American. This episode of the Constant Wonder podcast was produced by Lily Jensen and Eric Schultzka, sound designed by Addie Mangum. Remember, it's super easy to spread word about our podcasts. Just take a brief moment to leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining with us today. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.